This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Welcome to Episode 2 of a three-part series on the Grace Enough Podcast, where guests are joining me to discuss false messages of purity culture and Christian sexual ethics. Each episode can be listened to independently, but listening to all three will develop a more robust view of the topics being discussed. Today, I sit down with author and editor Rachel Joy Welcher. In 2020, Rachel released her book, Talking Back to Purity Culture, Rediscovering Faithful Christian Sexuality. While the title is provocative, her intent was not to create a new sexual ethic or deny God's call on His people to be pure and holy but instead to do exactly what the subtitle says, rediscover a more faithful, orthodox view of what the Bible says about sexuality. And that's what we discuss today. If this episode and last week's episode with Dean and Sarah has impacted your thinking in a positive way, will you do me a favor and hit the share button on the app where you're currently listening and either send it to a friend or share it on social media. As a podcaster, sharing an episode is the best compliment you can give me and the show. Good afternoon, Rachel, and welcome to the Grace Enough podcast. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. I'm grateful that it worked out. I've I've been trying to connect with you for a while, but you (laughs) have had a number of things going on in your family. So I hope they're going, I hope it's going better. Yes, (laughs) absolutely. Still sometimes hard to find pockets of time where there's not a, um, my daughter trying to scramble up on my lap, um, (laughs) and be the real guest on your podcast. (laughs) Oh, I was, we were talking earlier about 2020 and that's when I had, um, well, my, my youngest son is in first grade now, but it used to be that almost every episode he interrupted. And I have to tell people there's this door behind me. You're probably going to see a little blonde head poke in at some point, <laughs> give me less than five minutes and I'll work it out and we'll be good. And now I kind of miss those little guys oh, coming man. in and interrupting me. So interruptions. <laughs> that's right. That's right. But we're not here to talk about that. Um, and so I always love to ask my guests to get started. When did your faith journey begin? Like, tell us a little bit about uh, just your life with Christ early on. Right. Well, you know, I'm a pastor's kid and now a pastor's wife. And so I have had just the blessing and privilege of being exposed to the gospel of Jesus since I can remember. And I really treasure that. I know um, this is an age where a lot of church kids are reevaluating a lot of things. And I think my book shows that I'm also doing that, but I am so thankful for the parents God gave me and Mm. the truths that they passed on. You know, I remember memorizing verses in Awana and Sunday school, maybe even before it was in my heart. But what's amazing is that those verses, I I still have them. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Oh, yeah to memorize when you're little. And so some people might say, oh, that's indoctrination or meaningless repetition. But what I found is that then when I did become a Christian, probably around age 11, 
um, I had those verses hidden in my heart. Um, and all throughout my adulthood, they have served me so well. And so mm. it, it's interesting to even think about spiritual practices that maybe we practiced when we were unbelievers and how those things actually can end up being a blessing um, once the head knowledge becomes the heart knowledge. So mm. I was a pastor's kid, had just the experience of getting to hear the gospel and see very good examples of Christianity lived out in my home. I didn't really go through any testing of my faith until I got married. And I don't know if you want to save that part of my story, but you, please feel free to go ahead. And yeah, let's just go right into it. So I, I feel like I had a very firm foundation of theology um, and I love the Lord with all my heart, but you never know exactly what you're going to do when suffering comes until yeah. it happens to you. And so I went to a Bible college and like many people, I met my husband there and we played by all the rules, all the purity culture books and, um, you know, got to know each other over years, involved our family and friends. Uh, we practiced all the purity culture rules about saving sex for marriage. And we were married and had a very beautiful marriage for about four years. But around that time, he started to question his faith and ultimately decided that he no longer wanted to be a Christian. Um, when he realized that he didn't want to be a Christian, married to a Christian either. Mm. And so he divorced me. And so I was left with, um, I was left to wonder a few things. One would be, is God punishing me? Like, did mm -hmm. I not live out the rules well enough? Does God still love me? Or yeah. were these rules, uh, these promises that I thought I'd earned through my good behavior, maybe they weren't actually promises God had ever made me. And so that's one of the things uh, that was the personal side of why I dug into purity culture. Yeah. Well, so tell me with that, because I think you said a couple of really, really key things there, which is, did God actually make those promises? Because a lot of what I'm seeing today are people actually diving in like you did and not completely walking away, but just asking some absolutely crucial questions. But then on the other side of that, people who aren't necessarily taught to be critical thinkers mm -hmm. or who just struggle with that aspect of it, just say that was all a lie and I'm going away. And so have you seen that happen a lot? Um, oh, absolutely. Right. Yeah. I think that's one of the reasons that sometimes, well, the word deconstruction in and of itself is very controversial yeah. um, because people mean different things when they say mm -hmm. it. Um, but I think there are some different ways to deconstruct. I think you can deconstruct with a goal in mind, which might sound mm. strange to some people because they would say, well, I didn't choose to deconstruct. But what I mean by that is you can say, I know there are things about Christianity that don't actually line up with scripture mm -hmm. that were more of a cultural thing, um, kind of like a, a snowball rolling down a hill and picking up speed and picking up snow. We have to be willing to dust some of that off and say, we have to sort through it. And so I think yes. there's a way I would say, maybe this isn't the right word, but to say like faithful deconstruction would look like comparing the things we were taught to scripture itself and, and seeing where maybe we have um, beard because we, we look at church history and it happens over and over again, right? right. That our human tendencies and human messages get mixed in. And so I think there is a way to take apart purity culture without throwing out God's word, but many, many are, have been so burned by it and are so, and they're hurting so much or so angry that they are just throwing out God's sexual ethic. Um, and, wow. and you, you see with my book is that my goal was to stay true to God's word while 
boldly questioning things that needed to be questioned. And it was a very, very difficult balance. And I'm sure I didn't do it perfectly. <laughs> right. Well, and that's the thing though. None of us do it perfectly. And that I, is where, I, and that it almost goes back to some of those things you said about Awana, like memorizing mm-hmm, verses mm-hmm. and how some will say, oh, that's indoctrination. But the reality is we're all being indoctrinated by something. Always. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And to, and to recognize that is very important because one thing going back to the deconstructing crowd, we need to recognize that while we're deconstructing, we are still being influenced yes. and often being influenced by others who are deconstructing in different ways. And so to assume that just because we're taking one thing apart, that we're not being, it's not being put back together in a fresh way without our, un- we, we just need to be very aware of all the different influences coming in and to be critical of all of them, not just uh-huh. the ones coming from the church. Um, uh-huh. although absolutely we need to question our own house and make sure we're getting it right. But the world also has a very strong influence, whether we'd like to admit it or not. Yeah. It's, Oh, it's so true. I love this already. Um, uh, but I'm going to try to not get completely <laughs> sidetracked off of I know purity so culture. <laughs> I'm like, hmm, maybe we need to talk again about deconstruction. But with that said, some of those books that you did read growing mm. up as a Christian girl in the nineties, you know, I kissed dating goodbye. Oh, a lot of us know those, but what were some of those messages when you look back into your teenage years, what were some of those subtle messages that you picked up that at the time seemed completely fine and you had no idea that it was going to blow up in your face? Right. You know, I didn't even realize, and I think this is so many people's story that I was internalizing some of these messages in an unbiblical way. Yeah. One of the problems was that we were all reading these books, but we weren't reading them like together, like a book study or Bible study. We were just, we were all getting handed these books for graduation gifts or um, just by youth pastors and parents. And I think the church leaders, all they knew was that this was something about sexual purity. So it had to be good. And so I think what we were doing is we were reading them individually and, and internalizing some of these messages without that, um, you know, community, without that involvement of someone saying, Hey, actually that author didn't get this part, right. And so that's one thing I tell people is that we need to be very careful. I mean, I'm an author, so I obviously love books, but we should be reading books in community because no author's perfect other than God. Um, so that was one problem I saw, but one of the messages I internalized was this idea that good behavior is always rewarded by God with good gifts. And you see some verses in Proverbs that seem to promise that. But one of the things I think I was missing was Christ, the suffering Christ. Mm. The fact that God loved Jesus more than anything, and his love could include suffering and loss. And so I had internalized this message that if I saved sex for marriage and was very good in that way, that I was ensuring myself a great marriage, a great sex life, and the ability to have kids. And I think so many of my peers believe that as well. So then when I ended up divorced, again, you either question God, you assume you've done something wrong, or you question your interpretation of these Christian, of this, you know, Christian subculture. And so I chose the latter. And what I found was that I was not the only one, you know, who, who had internalized these messages and felt either like let down by the church or abandoned by God. And so when I dug into scripture, I saw that God had not abandoned me, that he had never promised me that. And that in fact, he was loving me so well through my suffering. He never left my side and my faith grew by leaps and bounds during that Mm. time in my life. Mm. I love that because I hear you also 
as you're talking, I mean, I'm thinking about my own husband. Like I did not grow up in Christian purity culture. I mean, I, I grew up during that time, but I was the exact opposite of what the purity culture was teaching us okay. to do. I was doing all the things and then sure. still going to church and acting like I was a Christian. So mm. there's that side of it that also brings wounding in a different way. Absolutely. Um, so I could, but I can look at my husband who said, who has said some of those same things. Like, I guess I just thought if I saved myself for marriage, that I was going to have a wife who wanted to have sex all the time. Well, that's not his story. So then men are working through those lies. Absolutely. I mean, it crossed gender lines for sure. There was, (laughs) that's an interesting point you just made. Some of the men I interviewed said that they, they believe the promise that their wife would be this like sex goddess, a a constant outlet that uh, would be available. Right. And this is another topic we don't have to dig into, but the idea that marriage solves lust is another promise that those oh, yeah. is not true. And that has perhaps caused even more damage than anything else I've mentioned so far. Um, that when, when you realize that marriage is not, that you will still struggle with sin, you'll still struggle with, um, if, if say for instance, someone was addicted to pornography before yeah. they get married, the idea still that addicted. Once- well, right. The idea that have being able to have sex with your spouse will suddenly make it so you don't feel the need to, or you don't feel the desire to sin. That means that people aren't even working through some of their sins because they think that marriage is going to solve it. Oh. The other problem with that is that then you look at your spouse as a sexual outlet instead of an image bearer of God. And mm-hmm. oh my goodness, the destruction that poses to marriage. Oh, so, so many things we could talk about here. Yeah. Oh, it's so true. You're right. Because it's, there's so many things that I could say right now about that. <laughs> it's Sorry, like, I'm really bad about bringing up multiple topics at once. No, so. I love it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Please. I could totally end up. We'd be talking about my chickens outside after hey, we started hey. with purity culture. So it's <laughs> the story of my life <laughs> because somehow that connects, right? Sure, <laughs> I'm sure somehow we can make it. <laughs> That's right. Well, go ahead and talk a little bit about, you know, you shared a few messages. We've talked about a few of the messages that we get that were false um, or that we just internalized wrong. And the authors probably had really good intentions. I don't think any of these authors, I don't think any author in general sets out to cause a whole generation to have issues, body image issues, all the things. But, and we've seen that when Joshua Harris has talked about his book and how even some of the messages that people shared, he was like, I didn't even write that. Right. <laughs> like, that's right. not even what I wrote. Right. <laughs> and he gets the blame for a lot of it. But anyways, what are some of the things that God does teach about purity mm. and marriage that's from his word that right. differ from what some of these messages um, that authors would share? That's a great question. Well, one of the messages that we see in scripture and really is the gospel message is that we are given Christ's righteousness when we become Mm. Christians. And so you could also substitute the word righteousness for purity. Jesus is the source of our purity, right? And so purity culture really emphasized personal purity, which absolutely matters. Holiness matters. Obedience matters. But when it comes down to who we are in Christ, we are already pure. And so this idea, this idea in purity culture that you can like lose parts of yourself, like uh, one author talked about a chocolate cake and a piece being sliced out. And that that's like your worth after you 
um, you know, flirt have with premarital someone, sex or, or have premarital sex. Yeah. I mean, her, she went so far as to say, like, if you flirt with someone, you're giving away a piece of cake, but oh gosh, yeah, that was an intense book, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I don't want to get distracted. <laughs> purity culture made it sound as though our purity was something that changes ebbs and flows based on our performance. And what we mm. see in scripture is that we are all guilty. We all need Christ and he makes us pure. Now, Obedience does matter, but the idea that our obedience is not what saves us and our purity, our, our performance, our sexual performance, um, our past is not what determines our purity. Ultimately it's Christ. And so I think that was a truth that should have been emphasized. I think one of the reasons it wasn't emphasized is there was this idea that if you told kids, teenagers, that they were already pure, then they just go out and sin. Well, that's always going to be the tension with law and grace, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think about Paul saying, should we sin more that grace may abound? May it never Absolutely be. Absolutely not. And so, yeah, I would tell anyone, the fact that you are pure in Christ doesn't mean that you should just go sleep with your boyfriend because that doesn't honor him. And we should care about the God who saved us. Mm-hmm. We should care about his glory. We should love him. And I, we're going to do it imperfectly. We're going to fail. We're going to repent. We're going to get back up again. But I try to encourage people to view the pursuit of sexual purity as a form of worship. So we are very imperfect worshipers, but we don't strive for holiness because we're earning God's favor. We strive for holiness as worship in response right. to the purity he has already granted us. And so when you think about some, when, you know, listeners think about something they're struggling with sexually, think about it as worship, um, as a way to just praise the God who has saved you. Mm-hmm. And, and the God who really is the only one, um, that resonates inside of you. Like sometimes I'm like the Holy spirit within us is not just here to condemn us. That's not his Ooh, purpose. Comforter, right? Yeah. And intimacy. Absolutely. And so that loneliness, mm. again, sexual fulfillment does not take away loneliness. No. And that's such an important truth that you just spoke. And I think that we we can believe that, right? Like if I just meet this desire and mm-hmm. I'm like, no, no, there's another desire, right? Trust me. I've been married. <laughs> right. As soon as one's fulfilled the next day, you have a new desire. Absolutely. That is, uh, that is so good. Um, Jesus really, the Holy spirit really is the one who meets us in our loneliness and, uh, so much could be said about that. This episode is brought to you by the truce podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Well, so regarding your book, um, it's called Talking Back to Purity Culture. And so you mentioned this a little bit earlier, but I want to read 
what you said your goal was with the book. And I want you to expound on that a little bit, because I think it's crucial for people to know you're not attacking the church or purity. And so you said, my goal is not to create a new sexual ethic, but to help the church return to a more faithful, orthodox understanding of what the Bible says about sexuality and the grace and forgiveness we have through Jesus Christ. And so while you've talked about that just a little, Mm -hmm. share a little bit more. So yeah, there were two types of immediate pushback when my book came out. And I think the first pushback came from the conservative crowd who just read the title. And understandably, it's a bit of a sassy title, um, the idea of talking back. But what most readers found once they dug in is that I wasn't questioning God's word. I was questioning a Christian subculture and a Christian subculture that needed to be questioned. That's right. And so that's one of the things I point out is that if you're going to critique the church, you should be doing it from inside the church as a member who loves, loves her and wants to see her flourishing. Mm. And that is an increasingly controversial message. Let me tell you, <laughs> yep. but I think it's so important that, you, that I don't speak from the sidewalk pointing and yelling at the church. You need to do better, but I'm actually a part of the church. My blood, sweat, and tears are to see her purified and to see her holy. And I am part of that repentance and I am part of that work. And so I wrote this book from the place of love for the church and a desire to see us do better when it comes to these conversations. And so Mm -hmm. while there are other books that have come out recently critiquing purity culture that have just said, we're going to create a new sexual ethic that better resembles this culture's desires or feels like sexual freedom. Uh, What I've said is that God didn't get anything wrong. He Mm -hmm. is God. He gets to make the rules. And he says that sex the act of intercourse is exclusive to marriage between one man and one woman. That is, again, not a popular message, but God makes the rules. He invented sex. Now, one of the things I talk about is, though, is that sexuality is u- more universal, that mm-hmm. he not only did he create the act of sex, but he created our sexuality. And every single one of us, it manifests itself differently, but every single one of us is a sexual being, and that is a God-created good. And I think that there's so much guilt um, coming from purity culture and other things that we have to almost redeem the word sexuality and realize that being sexual beings is not what is sinful. It's what Correct. we do. Yeah. It's what we do with our sexuality. And even then when we sin, there's forgiveness. And so there are definitely teachings in purity culture that needed to be questioned. And I think, again, I did it imperfectly, but my desire was that we'd be more biblical, not less. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I know. Well, and Rebecca McLaughlin, she was on my show a couple of weeks ago when Rebecca had said, you know, one of the first things we need to do is to get it straight in our heads and our idea that marriage is not the pinnacle right. of Christian relationship, sexuality, a relationship with Jesus is the pinnacle. Amen. And if we can get that right and really wrap our head around that, because we've elevated the nuclear family to actually be in a place where it shouldn't be. The family of God is actually bigger and more talked about. I was like, yes, girl, preach. That is so good. That's it right there. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it's, it's so easy to mess that up and listen, I don't want the responsibility of being the pastor or the author in your case. Um, but then I find myself in this seat sometimes going, okay, right. Are we sharing what the word of God is saying? Not just my opinion or how I feel. 
Right. And so, oh, it's so easy. And I think every generation needs to be humble enough to say, we're going to question our interpretation of God's word, because we are fallible. We all have uh, our own personal bias. And so I even, I wrote, I think it was for an article, but I said that, you know, my book will be questioned in the next, you know, I yeah. want it to be because now I want it to be questioned mercifully, but every single one of us is fallible. And so questioning purity culture is not the same thing as questioning God. That's right. <laughs> purity culture it's is not. something we made up. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, and I mean, and also being humble enough to just say sometimes like I got it wrong. Right. There are definitely some episodes I've put out in the last four years that I'm like, well, I'd kind of like to go back and <laughs> maybe do that one again, you know, but <laughs> That's called sanctification. We all grow Amen. and change. Amen. And yeah. So you also write that we wore purity rings as badges of honor, forgetting that it is Jesus who cleanses us from all unrighteousness, which is what we were just talking about. The Christian pursuit of sexual purity is biblical, but it must flow out of a, recogni a recognition that Jesus is who makes us pure. How does that shift really change everything? Mm. Well, I think it it gives our faith a firm foundation that we are standing on Christ, not our own works. And so again, it's not an invitation to sin more. It's, it's an invitation to rest in the mm. finished work of Christ. And, and again, I believe that the pursuit of sexual purity is just one of many ways that we worship God um, with our body, our heart, our mind, and our soul. And so the other thing that I think is so important is that the messages purity culture put out made so many people feel as though they were broken yeah. or that they wouldn't be valuable future spouses because either they'd sinned or they'd had their um, virginity stolen from them through sexual abuse. So many different uh, reasons why people felt uh, kind of like used goods um, or purity culture talked about like a chewed up stick of gum or, you know, all these horrible metaphors, but, you know, the rose passed around the room, all wrinkled. And there is just nothing like that in scripture. That is not who we are in Christ. In fact, that's a, that's an insult to what Jesus did on the cross to talk that way. And so it is really, really important that we understand the source of our purity and the steadiness of that. When you are in Christ, I believe that the more we understand God's love for us, the easier it is to follow him. So those who would say, oh no, if you talk about God's love too much, then you're going to feel the freedom to sin. That's not how it works. The more we love God, the more we feel secure in him, the easier it is to follow him obediently and joyfully. Oh, it is true. And I wish that I could just get that through every teenager. I know, I mean, adults too, but I just happened to lead a group of middle school girls and I'm like, mm -hmm. the love, like it's hard to get through your head. And I mean, me too. Oh Yeah the love piece. Like this is not a love that you're going to lose. Right. And that's the only thing we can really fully understand because we're humans. Right. And we lose love all the time. Well, right. I think it's, it's almost, it feels almost impossible for us to imagine mm -hmm. perfection, first of all, and, and then perfect love. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's almost, well, it, it takes faith, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it absolutely does. Well, something else in Christian purity culture that again, I think, I mean, I think things are shifting. Um, I'm just not sure how they're shifting. Maybe you have a better handle on that than I do. <laughs> it feels like we're just not talking about it at all. But anyways, um, <laughs> you talk about how oftentimes the responsibility is placed a lot more on women. Yes. 
than what it is on men because we need to dress modestly. We're just one big temptation. Right. What is the danger in that? Um, where does this fall short? Right. And how should we really be talking about what women's responsibility is in the mm-hmm. whole thing? Oh man, this is this is a very important topic and mm-hmm. it might sound extreme, but I I related aspects of purity culture to secular rape culture. And mm. I really feel like it's a very the comparison is is um apt because when we say that one person is more responsible than the other, then we're saying that they are always the one who's culpable in any situation. So for instance, if, if a Christian man is dating a Christian woman and he sexually abuses her, the message that we received from purity culture books was that the woman should have done something to stop it. Either she was wearing something too immodest. Mm -hmm. She was the one who was in charge because men can't control themselves and we can. And so it was her job to prevent herself from being sexually abused. Well, that that's rape culture right there. And so where the the blame is placed on the victim. Um, And the other side of it is, is that men absolutely have the Holy spirit. Um, We are new creations in Christ. And so the idea that we told men essentially that they lacked self-control and couldn't, that that when it came to sex, they would not be able to uh, practice the, the fruit of the spirit of self-control. Well, that's un, not only is that unbiblical, but I think it's a little scary because you are, uh, one author I read said, it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm-hmm. And I've noticed that in some men, the way they talk about sexuality, they talk about it as though they're scared of their own sexual urges so much. So they don't trust themselves, but we're not, we're not supposed to trust ourselves, but we can trust that the Holy spirit is in us and we can practice that self-control. And instead of men being encouraged to do that, I think they were more encouraged just to look away or to treat women as either sexual outlets in marriage. My wife is my sexual outlet and all other women are just like, yes. And I can't so talk many- to them because I think she's pretty. Wait, oh what? My goodness. Right. And so what do we do then with the verses in scripture that talk about the body of Christ and how we need one another? And we're all supposed to be working together about how you're supposed to treat women as sisters in all purity. You can't treat someone as a sister if you view them as just a walking temptation and you never look them in the eye. Oh, so and so it's just so important that I wrote an article after talking to a teenage boy who said he was struggling with lust. And one of the things I told him was that Every time he was started to struggle with lust um, after a girl he knew, he could ask the question, or even if he didn't know her, ask the question, how does God see her? Mm. And he said, well, God sees her as a daughter. And I said, okay, well, does that help kind of reorient? Would it be harder to lust after someone who you just called a daughter of God? And he said, yeah. And then I said, and why don't you pray for her too? Mm-hmm. Because it's very difficult to sin against someone you're praying for. But the, the whole point of of what I was saying to him is that we have to learn to dignify one another as image bearers of God, that that's the true solution to lust, not just looking away or running away, even though sometimes we do have to look away or run away. Um, but we ultimately don't want to be running away from each other forever. Right. And so, so, but back to how women were treated, women were dehumanized in purity culture by being depicted as just temptation uh, or that our bodies themselves were sinful just because they they're beautiful. Well, yeah. And that is that, well, how sad for God, our creator who made us this way on purpose and, and called us good for us to then feel guilt just for being women. It's just so sad. And so many of us are still unlearning those toxic teachings, but I believe that purity culture also dehumanized men 
by treating too. them. Yeah. By treating them as though they, they don't have the Holy spirit as much as women do. And so well, unlike they're wild animals, I'm like, it's just so dehumanizing. It's, it's really insulting and we've got to change the way we talk about men and women. Yeah. Well, and I mean, when you think about young boys, like, have you thought through just really, I mean, would you say one of the main things they really need to hear is, yeah, the Holy spirit is in you as well. Um, is there anything you would really add to that? I know with my son, I have a 12 year old and, um, he is such a black and white thinker already. Mm. And I mean, he's grown up in Christian culture. And so I can see some of the stuff Mm -hmm. coming out in him. And I, I grabbed his little face one day, hopefully he doesn't kill me when he's 18 and hears me say this, but I just grabbed his little face one day. And I was like, you know, it is completely normal for you to look at a girl and think and be attracted to her. Oh yeah, absolutely. And then he kind of shared a couple extra things. And I said, you know, and, and those feelings are normal too. Those are not bad feelings. Right. God has given you those. And then walking through some of the things of this is when the line is crossed. Right. Don't run from her. She's a beautiful girl. Like, and that's where I do see parent involvement and, and the mm-hmm. stop being afraid of talking to your children about not sex, like intercourse, mm-hmm. but, but just sexuality. Absolutely. You know, that's, that's a really good point is that I think sometimes we parents think that the talk is just this one time done, right. But really it's about, it's not just about intercourse, which is a very exclusive type of relationship. It's about the fact that we're all walking around as sexual beings and that it impacts every area of our life. And that, that is, like you said, it's such a normal common thing. And not only that, but it's something that God calls good. We can warp it and make it sinful, but just having that recognition that someone else is beautiful or having the desire, hoping that one day you can get married and have sex is a good, healthy desire. Mm -hmm. And so I love that you're already telling your son that, I mean, I think that alone takes away some of the mystery and shame. Um, and to any parents listening, you know, just to encourage you, if, if you're thinking, Oh, I don't think my kids want to talk about this. Well, some of my high school students had shared with me, um, I used to be a high school teacher that, you know, they had questions about sex and sexuality, but they were too embarrassed to ask. And so they'd Google it, but then that led them to porn and then porn addictions. And so just know parents that your kids, sometimes they view their curiosity about sex as a sin in and of itself. And Mm -hmm. it's not. And so almost in a sense, reward them, um, with answers, reward them with, uh, a lack of embarrassment and just a, yeah. Oh man. Cause when this boy, uh, teenage boy told me he was struggling with lust, I said you and everyone else, you know, like not, not to make him feel less special, but just to say, you are not alone that, Mm -hmm. um, lust is a common human struggle. And, um, and then, you know, we proceeded to talk about how to solve it, but I think our kids need to know, we need to remove the taboo nature around sexuality. And I think we're, we're doing that slowly, but surely, but it takes work. It does take work and it takes an openness. I feel like still the church will kind of shy, you know, step back a little bit. And I'm like, well, you know, culture's educating them. So that's the thing. Oh my goodness. They're TV or, shows that they're watching. People also were worried about, well, I don't want to share it in Sunday school because that mom or dad may not have talked to their kid yet. And I'm like, well, they're learning it in culture. So it might be better off if Sunday school teacher is just the one who exposes it. 
for goodness sakes, would you rather them learn about it in a Christian context, in a safe place, or you're absolutely right. For parents who think your kids are not hearing about it somewhere else, wake up. Mm -hmm. Uh, And even Christian school kids, trust me, I have three of them. (laughs) You might be homeschooling your kids. They're finding out about it. They've got friends. Don't think, don't think that they're not. And so don't you want to be the one to control that narrative um, and, and to shepherd them? Yeah. Well, and something that you write about in the book that I love speaking of you being a teacher is just how literature can help that and conversation around books and how it just ends up bringing up topics where people, kids in particular, adults too, will begin to discuss something that was written by someone else in a way that they may never do if you ask the direct question out loud. And so just share a little bit of that story, because I think it was a beautiful way for teachers who may be listening to to mm-hmm. don't be afraid when that is a portion of the book you're reading to right. let people have a conversation about it. Well, you made a really good point that it it's almost like an indirect way to bring up conversations as a writing teacher. I remember that my students and this was not just about sexuality, but when they'd have to like write a poem, they would sometimes be able to name griefs or longings or Mm -hmm. situations that they couldn't in any other way. Uh, And it wouldn't have come out in an essay. It wouldn't have come out in a, you know, a testimony during chapel, but when they were given sort of the literary freedom to symbolize something or to talk about it, maybe in a different way, it's amazing what comes out. Um, So if you are a writing teacher, you are holding such precious stories in your hands. Um, Mm. But yeah, if you're teaching, whether you're um, a Sunday school teacher, a pastor, a parent, um, an English teacher, when you read stories together, it's going to bring out the universal human experience. Don't avoid, I'm not saying uh, assign sexually explicit books that that's not the point, but to, to talk about relationships and loneliness and intimacy, there's God honoring ways to do that. And it opens that door to say, Hey, this is part of the human experience. And we should talk about it in Christian contexts, like you said, so that they're not only being discipled about sex from secular culture, which really is what happens when we don't talk about it. Yeah. And it seems to be what's really prevalent at times because we don't have all the answers. Mm-hmm. And so as Christians, if we don't think we have all the answers, we get a little bit scared. And I'm like, oh, it's, it's okay. Don't be scared about it. Send them to my house. I'll talk to them about it. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Not because I'm an expert. I'm just like, listen, I made all the mistakes. And, and then my husband didn't make any of the mistakes. And we're in this relationship together. And it's very imperfect and it's been very hard yeah. in a lot of ways, but it's been beautiful too, because nobody was giving up. I love that. I love that. That's beautiful. That's a beautiful testimony right there. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I could talk about this forever, but let's end with this. I deeply appreciate, and you referenced this in the beginning about how something that might've been missing or that was missing from these books that were on sexual purity is people were reading them independently. Mm-hmm. and not talking about them in community. Mm-hmm. And at the end of every chapter, you share discussion questions and a practice. Mm-hmm. And I am already like, as I was reading through it, thinking like, this would be such a great book to do with anybody, any mm-hmm. age, in my opinion. With that said, uh, when readers get to the end of your book, what lessons do you hope that they take away from it so that they do uphold God's sexual ethic Mm, instead mm -hmm. of our own ideas? Oh, that's a big question. As I said before, if the foundation of our purity, if we recognize that it's Jesus, that's actually going to make us want to love him and serve him more, not less. And so 
pursuing that deep heart knowledge that Jesus is your righteousness is a worthy goal and it will help you fight sexual Mm -hmm. temptation. Um, because there is always a way of escape with him. He is your sympathetic high priest who knows what it's like to be human. Cling to Jesus as your example. He knows, he knows what it's like to be lonely. He knows what it's like to be in pain. Um, when Jesus was on earth, he was a sexual being. He knows what that's like too. And so don't forget that God became flesh and dwelt among us and cling to that in your weakness, cling to that on good days. And remember that he is your righteousness and you are whole and complete in him. Oh, thank you so much, Rachel. I really appreciate the work that you've done in this conversation. And I know you're writing a new book that doesn't have anything to do (laughs) with purity culture, but will you share that with us so that people will just know? My heart's work is as a poet, and that's what I've been doing since I can remember. So I have a, my third collection just came out and it's called sometimes women lie about being okay. And it really, um, it's the last four years of poems. Um, it's following my other book that was about, um, you know, working through my divorce and remarriage. And this book talks about marriage, joy, hope, um, even just that tension between wanting to hope, but not being sure if you can. Um, Mm -hmm. I talk about miscarriage. I talk about the joy of having my first child and I talk about just what it's like to be human. And so it's, it's just my heart on the page. Um, and yeah, it's very different than my other book, but it's, it's the other side of my writing. So if you, and I don't rhyme. And one thing I've been told is that people who don't like poetry, like can like my poetry. So I think that's, um, if you don't like poetry, maybe give it a chance. Um, and see that I'm not speaking in riddles. My poems are pretty accessible. So that's a fun side project. (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Rachel. I appreciate you. Thank you. It was so good to be here. Don't forget to hit that share button in the app where you are currently listening. I really appreciate every listen and share. Next week, we'll close out this three-part series with Dr. Julie Slattery, where we continue the discussion on some false messages from 90s purity culture and the impacts they continue to present today. But we also discuss sexual intimacy. So be sure you're following Grace Enough Podcast in your favorite listening app so you don't miss next week's episode when it drops on Tuesday morning. Thank you for listening to the Grace Enough Podcast. Tune in next time.